Hello everybody, welcome to the Going Mental Podcast, I'm Nick Fenter and this episode today has been brought to you by Equip Sports and Wellness. So Equip offers mental skills training, performance coaching, counseling, mentorship and online education. You can check out the current online course in sports psychology at www.equipgroup.org courses accredited internationally and locally and currently on special for 3,000 Rand. My guest today is Kim Samaritana. I feel like I should be saying Dr. Kim because she does have a PhD in metaphysics um, but she's an expert in eating psychology which is quite a profound topic and we really get into the into the weeds in this one. Um, Kim gives us a good background of, of where she came from and how it led to, to her career path and I think this one is relevant to everybody. Um, it's, it's quite profound and mind-blowing the information that, that comes out here and it's just a bit of a message that there is help out there to, to anyone that, that is struggling with the situations that we speak about. Kim has treated uh, famous people like Shane Warne. She's treated Nelson Mandela for four years. She's a real expert, very experienced, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to her. So enjoy the conversation. Just listen. So I'm going to start to, but recapping what we've just done, um, and then we can just chat about that quickly and then, and things like that. So obviously last night I had a pizza and champagne to celebrate the launch of the podcast and Kim's been kind enough to do a blood analysis test, a live blood analysis test on me. And that's up on the screen over there. And um, what do you? What, what did you find there? What can you see from that image? Well, that image does tell a story. It tells a story of a gut that, um, for the most part, is well-functioning and healthy. Um, I can see that on an ongoing basis that you do take care of yourself. But you can see that you have been exposed to um, dietary um, stresses. So definitely... Um, Alcohol would be that, and pizza, even though it is gluten-free, still a lot of our bodies don't digest um, fats in the melted cheese very well, especially it depends on the different kinds of toppings that you've got going on. Um, but that looks like you've got a bit of intestinal irritation. And um, obviously, as I said to you earlier, the antibiotics course I took last week could also play a role in the digestive issues that you can see on the screen. Yes, well, in moving around on the slide... Um, Definitely we could see evidence of candida um, and fermentation on, um, within the plasma. And when that happens, that can, we often find that in people who have been on antibiotics. Um, I was actually treating a woman once who was prescribed an antibiotic for a bladder infection every three weeks wow. over the course of about two years before okay. she came to see me. And um, trying some alternative antibiotic therapies and all that and, um, and some remedies aimed at killing candida and with diet modifications we were able to eradicate that completely. Can you explain what candida is and, and how it affects the human body? 
So candida is a, a strain of yeast. Um, we all have it, but it's supposed to be kept in, in balance by um, our gut microbiome. So when you have uh, candida overgrowth in your body, um, it causes uh, lots of bloating, digestive um, irritation and problems, but also can give you symptoms uh, similar to chronic fatigue. It can definitely give you symptoms of um, depression, lower backache, you know, it affects your mood. Um, the amount of energy that you've got, a lot of people get brain fog from it. Um, it's also closely associated with some autoimmune diseases. So by managing the amount of candida in one system, it automatically makes more energy available to you. Clearer thinking and better functioning in general. Definitely better digestion and absorption. What type of, of food types should people avoid to, to avoid having an excess of candida? Sugar, mainly. Absolutely sugar. And um, foodstuffs that contain yeast. So things that are, are like um, leavened, like bread for instance, yeah. cakes, all that sort of thing, which is a combination of yeast and sugar. Yeah. Um, those are definitely the, the, one of the first things that we take out of the diet. And obviously alcohol falls into that category as well. Beers, wines, yes, absolutely. Okay. Very much so. Fermented it's, type. Yeah. Um, what else could you, as a live blood analysis expert, what else do you pick up and what, what do you look for in doing live blood analysis? The main thing we look at is what the, the terrain looks like within a person's body, which is obviously represented in the blood. So we can get a fair understanding of what a person's um, acidity levels are like, what their underlying inflammatory levels are like. If they're um, malabsorbing, we see a lot of evidence of things going right or wrong within the gut, which is very important. Gut health is of absolute paramount importance. Um, they found that the gut is absolutely the root for a lot of um, for our immunity as well as even our mood you know when people come in and they suffer with anxiety the first thing I address is their diet and what they do at home because even doing a, a session like craniosacral therapy which could potentially change things for them in the short term and then with, with treatment change it over the long term if they're not reinforcing what I'm doing at home then it's pointless they really have to take care of themselves at home and that's really a move away from the conventional way of treating things like mood disorders, anxiety, depression, with simple prescription of um, antidepressants to a more holistic outlook at why, what is the cause, what is the root cause of, of the issue this person has? Yeah, completely. I mean, and it makes sense, I think. You know, if a person's gut isn't functioning optimally, we um, process and create a lot of serotonin in our guts and serotonin and dopamine, and those are our feel-good hormones. And so if your gut is in an inflamed state, you're not going to be producing enough of those. So you're not going to feel easygoing. You're not going to feel relaxed. You might feel depressed, you know, not able to concentrate, focus, and that kind of thing. And it's, um, it's really, I've noticed in my practice that it's actually remarkable how um, effectively those symptoms can be addressed by addressing um, strategically what the gut needs. Yeah. How, how new is that in the science and how grounded is that in the science? It's something that I've impl imp implemented into my own life is looking after my gut better, but it seems like it's quite new science to know that the anxiety levels and things can, can start in the gut and not necessarily in the brain. So the, the gut-brain axis yeah. um, understanding is new. Um, I mean, in terms of how long 
medicine, modern medicine has been around. But there is extensive research on it now. Um, I've worked closely with a psychiatrist, his name is Jonathan Mach, um, and he doesn't ever prescribe medicines oh, anymore. Wow. He only prescribes mindfulness and addressing your diet and that sort of thing. So there yeah. are a lot of doctors and practitioners across the board that are becoming more and more aware of how the gut and the diet impacts our mental well-being. Yeah. What is that name again? The doctor, the psychiatrist? Jonathan Mach. Jonathan Mach. Is he in Joburg? He's in Joburg. Cool. It would be nice to touch base with someone that's like that. You know? He would love it. Yeah, that would yeah. be cool. Yeah. I want to just uh, put the spotlight on you for a minute because I've read on your website you've had quite a history that's led to your career path. Can you maybe just talk about some of the things you went through in terms of disease and illness and finding healing and then how that's led to your career? Absolutely. So... Um Initially, I trained as, um, I, I did a, what's called an MTEC uh, through UJ, and my study was on um, women with cervical cancer um, and reflexology, and seeing how reflexology could impact or benefit women who um, had stage 2B and 3B cervical cancer, who were being treated at um, the Hilbra Hospital at the time. Um, and then I went into private practice after that, and after a good year, a couple of years of being in private practice, um, I started noticing that I started getting very tired and extremely achy, and I started noticing that um, I wasn't running optimally in terms of, of my own health and wellness. Um, and so I started going for tests, and um, my endocrinologist uh, picked up that I have what's called Hashimoto's disease. And Hashimoto's in and of itself is... It's an autoimmune condition where your body um, perceives your thyroid to be an enemy, an enemy tissue. And so your body actually targets your thyroid. And so then as the thyroid dies off slowly, you, um, you start needing thyroid supplementation. But um, many people actually have Hashimoto's and they don't know about it because they have blood tests and their blood tests actually show that they're euthyroid, which means that their thyroid's still functioning fine. It's just that then you've got this underlying autoimmune thing happening where your body has started getting, um, has started acting on programming where your cells start acting against you, oh, your wow. immune cells. Yeah. So um, basically the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue that, that I got, got to the point where I couldn't practice anymore and I took about two years off. I spent about 18 months in bed. Um, and in that space, I started practicing meditation daily um, I cleaned up my diet. Um, I was having various therapies like reflexology, for instance. Um, I had it by that stage already studied craniosacral therapy, so I was also having that. All of these things helped. Um, I think the major breakthrough came where I started introducing nutritionals through um, a company that I believe in. Um, basically, their stuff has gotten me so, so close to remission. It's, it's actually been amazing. So I take immune modulators uh, that are aloe-based. Um, it's kept me off having to take medicines and all that kind of thing. And then, basically, I repaired my gut. And in repairing my gut, the autoimmune um, symptoms abated almost completely. And it was in an astoundingly quick amount of time as well. So then um, I had a... Uh, just thinking of the timeline... <laughs> A, a major breakup, a, quite a traumatic breakup. Oh, okay. There was like a lot of upheaval and it was really quite damaging. 
um, to both of us. And as a result of that trauma, then with the underlying autoimmune stuff, I became type 1 diabetic. And um, the diabetes was really quite something to wrap my mind around. I was the uh, oldest latent onset that they'd actually seen at the Donald Gordon. I think I was about 35 at the time. Wow. It's very unusual yeah. for that to happen. And I really had to wrap my mind around a lot of things because I was already meditating and eating right and doing all these things. You know, I went into a lot of self-blame, blaming God, you know, the universe. Um, I got angry. I wasn't sure what to do with this, you know, um, especially being a healer. How can this kind of thing happen to me? And um, then a friend of mine told me about um, the eating psychology course. It's a course run in America, and basically that, I don't know, it was just like a really good click and fit for me. I realized that I needed to wrap my mind around the choices that I was making. And, and I needed to understand deeper how my internal mental environment was then dictating what was happening in my physical environment. Um, yes, so, so that was, that, and basically that's changed everything. My internal dialogue has changed completely. From studying that, I've, I've realized that I tend to be quite um, type A and quite inflexible and quite rigid. And I can see how being so inflexible and hard on myself has been incredibly damaging. And so that's a big part of what I teach is, is self-compassion has to come in as number one. You know, I, now I understand the chemical drivers behind the, the reason we make the choices we make. Um, through, you know, whether it be through uh, trauma, tra trauma, traumatic events or physical trauma like being hurt um, or having had an illness or a shock to your system or a traumatic relationship or whatever. We're all completely chemically driven. And um, understanding that really helps me help people move into a space of compassion with themselves. And we can only really heal from a place of compassion. I've yet to meet someone who screams at their body to heal and it listens. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. It has to be a gentle, soft, warm, safe space. So the big change for me came in when I realized that I was actually not a safe space for my own body. Okay. So if your mental, um, my mental dialogue at the time was very critical and very inflexible. And in being that person, you know, if, if that's the space that you hold, then your body doesn't actually have a safe space in this world because we all know that the external um, environments are like aggressors against us, you know. Um, you, you can get burnt by the sun, you can freeze, you can overheat, you can dehydrate, you can, uh, someone can do something to you. You can't rely on the external world to be a safe space for you. You absolutely have to be a safe space for yourself. And unless you're a safe space for yourself, you, you won't heal. Yeah. So. The, that's quite an interesting point there, and it's, it's quite inspiring for me because so many people look to the outside world for, for comfort and for healing and for ways to not only distract themselves from themselves, but to distract themselves from really taking responsibility for themselves. Um, is that something you use in your practice now, is to teach people to take responsibility for their own space that they hold for their own bodies? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. If, if you have to take complete responsibility for yourself in your journey. And it's not to say that people haven't been the victim of something happening to them. Yeah. But victimhood is really a state of mind. It's where you feel that everything is working against you, you know, and, and it's really, you know, it's, you know, that's the glass half full versus half empty argument. Some people are just grateful that they have a glass. Yeah. 
And do you, do you now feel that everything you've gone through, because it's quite a story you've 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 had already, and you you're still quite young. So, do you feel like everything you've been through has prepared you to be a healer and a safe space for for your your patients and clients? Completely, absolutely. From um, after I studied the um, eating psychology, and I really fell in love with that. Um, and I was combining that way of working with self, with the craniosacral therapy um, that I was practicing as well. I then went on to study metaphysics. So I hold a PhD from the University of Sedona. And in my study, I actually um, had a look at how our internal dialogue and using a mantra affects us on a cellular, cellular level and it's reflected in the blood within an hour. So. I completely, you know, where I sit now in my practice and the, and the human that I am now and the being that I am now, it's so obvious how the universe is so geared in my favor for my evolution. And unfortunately, evolution doesn't feel nice. It's like if you're a piece of coal and you're being compressed to become a diamond, that pressure doesn't feel good. But what comes out of there is absolutely spectacular. So there's absolutely no doubt that everything in my life has geared me to get to the point where I can be the most effective practitioner that I can be. And um, it's, it's all been beautiful. I have no, um, I mean, I'm still a type 1 diabetic and I'm okay with it. I understand the gifts that that brings um, and I'm grateful for it. And it's just one of those things. We all have stuff and we all just have to roll with it as such. And um, yeah, I think... The whole journey, uh, it's been, there's been highs and there's been lows, has been perfect. Wow. It's, it's, it's something that people can look to. I always feel if, you've, if you're going through difficult times and you, you're going through trauma and struggles, in that moment you can't really see it as, oh, this is fine because it's teaching me something for the future. But in hindsight, you always realize that this has prepared you for something. So if, what type of advice would you give to people that are going through difficult times, illnesses that they can't find help for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, disease, trauma, in that moment, just to have a bit of a more positive outlook to say, I can get through this and, and this is for something greater. How do you go through that process? The first thing I would bring in is self-compassion. Because when you go into a space of self-compassion, there's a gentleness that will start allowing for acceptance. When we don't accept a situation for what it is, it's almost like a kind of insanity that we all struggle with. It's almost like we live in a projected version of our future that doesn't actually exist. You know, like when I have this house, or when I have this car, when I have this state of health. Yeah. So it's about accountability, sort of taking stock, but then relaxing into it. I like to tell my patients that resisting what is, is as effective as standing and pushing with all of your force up against a wall. For 24 hours, let's call it. Yeah. I mean, what's that going to prove? You're going to prove that the wall's there and you're going to completely debilitate yourself. You'll be fatigued mentally, emotionally, physically. You won't have proven anything. It's not about the wall not being there. It's not about denying the fact that people are going through stuff. It's about taking a step back and just not pushing up against it, trying to pretend it's not there. And just in doing that, people can have up to 30% more energy in their day because they're not pretending that their life isn't what it is. And from that place, you start allowing positive, because when you're in exhausted, it's very difficult to be positive. Yeah. So when you start getting energy back in, you can start feeling the light come back in. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's amazing that you said that driving here um, for the first time in about two weeks, I could feel a little bit myself again because I, I went quite a, I took quite a bad turn from my antibiotics I was on and I couldn't figure out at first why am I suddenly feeling so down and fatigued and depressed and sick and driving here this morning I was in such a positive mood I was obviously excited for this conversation but it was the first day in two weeks that I felt the energy again to have a positive outlook on the future and and things and now hearing what you're saying it makes sense you know but at the moment you, you're stuck thinking where's my energy gone you know why why am I not feeling the positive positivity that I should be feeling and it can get depressing and people that don't know where to go for help I think they give up quite quickly so it's it's quite a breath of fresh air hearing you and knowing that someone like you is around to help you know from experience and from your your knowledge from studying so it's it's actually very cool I want to just uh, turn the tide a little bit and move on to the the eating psychology or is it the psychology of eating or eating or or both okay so why do people have such a weird relationship with food I think it's training 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 to be honest Um, you know uh, from very young we used uh, our parents used food as reward taking oh, wow. away of food as punishment yeah um, and also we observe how our parents have behaved with food and how society behaves with food you know um, advertising yeah you know be a man and go get a steak yeah. honestly it's ridiculous what we're exposed to and for the most part we actually don't really realize <clears throat> the subliminal training that's happening yeah constantly so so most of our eating habits are picked up when we're very very young and um we normally observe it with our parents and or siblings and peers yeah i mean that's one of the main ways of parenting that you see is if if a kid's done something good he gets a, a chocolate as a reward or dessert um and that obviously leads into an adult knowing thinking about those type of food types the sugars and the chocolates and things as rewarding yourself um but that's, that's the one side of it. The other side is p- people use eating as self-destructive behavior. Yeah. And it really, in my opinion, comes down to having a bad relationship with yourself, not having a hatred for yourself or resentment. Where does that come from and how does that relate to our eating? So in my experience, that really comes from self-esteem. You know, um, people, let's say, for instance, if someone's... Um, they, f- they feel that they're overweight, they'd like to lose a bit of weight. And they, like we've all heard about it, people go on a diet and it lasts a week or whatever and then they derail. Why do people derail? There's several factors involved here. The first is chemical in my, ex- in, uh, in my experience. So, so what we're not taking into uh, account is the withdrawal of things like sugars. Yes. Sugars are highly addictive substance. And so to just take yourself off it and then think that there's not going to be some sort of relapse at some stage because we're surrounded by it constantly is also not reasonable. This is where the self-compassion needs to come in. Yeah. If, if someone is overweight and they want to go on an eating program and it's explained to them that they're coming off sugar and coming off gluten and that kind of thing, um, if their systems are inflamed, um, is a weaning process and they're mentally geared for that they understand that their energy levels are going to dip. And when their energy levels dip, what's the first thing your body's going to ask for? Sugar. Sugar. 
if you're dependent on chocolate or other sweets for a dopamine hit, and all of a sudden you're depriving yourself of that, you're going to go into depression and your body's going to ask for what? Sugar. So people automatically default to this like, well, I'm not good enough, I have no willpower, I just can't manage this thing, as opposed to I'm having a massive chemical cascade happening in my body and I'm not supporting my body sufficiently through this process. Yeah. So they're looking at it as as they're blaming themselves for not having the willpower or the motivation. Exactly. But meanwhile, it's just a normal physical factual reason for why they're struggling with it. Correct. Then you also, you, of course, you do get the behaviors where people will turn to food as a um, self-destructive behavior. It is not normally a conscious self-destructive behavior. Um, so what I've encountered the most is, and even with myself, you know, if you're following a program and you just hit a point where you're just like, you know what, stuff it. I'm so tired. Not understanding in the past why I would have felt so tired or why this would have felt so emotionally exhausting. A lot of people just feel completely, it's like an all-consuming thing, what they eat. Yeah. They're absolutely obsessed. And it's exhausting. People just want to be able to relax into things. So from a self-loathing perspective, it can happen that people will make choices like if they start losing weight, if they feel emotionally unworthy yeah. of holding a space. And or what I've also found is that people who might do that actually have had a trauma in their past where um, um, especially women have been violated when they were children. And as they start losing weight, they start to feel unsafe because they don't understand the psychology behind why they've put on weight. They've put on weight to create space between themselves and their offender. They've put on um, weight to make themselves unattractive and unappealing to their offender, to take up more space and kind of come across as a bit more intimidating. There's a lot of different reasons why someone who's been violated might um, subconsciously be putting on weight. And then, of course, the conscious mind is telling them, Oh, you know, you're worthless, why are you doing this, you're fat, you're ugly, and whatever, but actually their body and their chemistry is driving them to make certain food choices because it's desperate to protect itself. Wow. The, the uh, documentary on, who's that guy in America now? It just recently came out on Netflix that he, he raped and sexually assaulted a bunch of young women, um, Epstein, sorry. Um, and my mom told me to watch it and then she made a note of that that all these beautiful young 16 17 year old girls that he that were his victims are now speaking on the documentary and all of them are completely overweight are they? and okay. and no disrespect to the woman but it, it seems to make sense to what you're saying as if though it was a protective factor from the trauma they they faced when they were still young and, and kids you know yeah so my findings is that inherently it's very rare that people genuinely want to spite themselves that they really want to be overweight or they want to be unhealthy. What they're trying to do is they're trying to derail a different process. They're either trying to numb out a pain or make themselves unattractive for a reason. There's always a reason. And in helping people work out what their reason is, is, is it's a huge part of, of getting people to the point where they can experience self-compassion and be gentle. You know, it's okay, so it's not just because I lack willpower or I'm not this awful person, it's actually because something happened to me when I was little and my body's trying to help me out. You know, um, a big part of my work is helping people understand that your body's not your enemy. A lot of people actually operate from, from the place of, 
like their body's working against them somehow. And that is so untrue. If that's one thing that the people that listen to this podcast take from this, is that your body's not your enemy. Your body is your best friend. It's your companion. It's the way that you get to have an experience of this world. Your body is not trying to spite you. Your body is speaking a language that you are not tuning into. And if you tune into what your body and your, your psyche needs, things will be alleviated a lot. Yeah. But it's really, it's a gentle approach is paramount here. I really, it, the, when people take a really tough as nails approach with themselves, it'll work in the short term. Yeah. I often see in, in sports psychology how an athlete would self-destruct his own performance because he almost feels guilty of, of being good or having success. And I actually spoke to Wade Van Niekerk, who's the world record holder, yesterday, and he said he struggled a long time with feeling guilty for being so successful when he had cousins growing up poor that don't have what he has. Yeah. Um, is that the same as what you're seeing with, with uh, eating, where they self-destruct because they feel guilty of maybe looking good or feel guilty of, of, of being rich or being successful? I haven't noticed that so much. You know, like I know what you're talking about. It's kind of like an imposter syndrome. Yes. Um, I haven't seen that relating to eating directly. But what I have seen is survivor guilt. Um, playing in with oh, eating well, yeah. where someone has been sick and they've been like why wasn't it me or um, I've moms whose children have died in car accidents and stuff like that and, and they were like well why wasn't it me yeah. you know and the guilt related to that yes absolutely but not so much imposter syndrome no how long would let's use the example of a mom being feeling guilty for, for losing a child how long would healing a person like that normally take in your practice that is a really open-ended question. So it, it depends, you know, um, it completely, that would be dictated by the kind of personality that person has. How open are they to the process? You know, um, a lot of people, especially in that kind of grief situation, do what they can to become functional again, but they feel that really recovering from that means that they're letting their child go and letting their child down, and so they will never. Oh, I see. Yeah. So there's a, it's very that's a very deep topic. Um, so it's more about when those people come into my space and they ask for help, um, I help them engender a gentle approach to self and help them understand their guilt and also I help them understand that their guilt doesn't serve and that's not even honouring the memory of their child, that that is not what their child would have wanted for them. Yes. And then help them implement, because often they can't implement things for themselves, help them implement very gentle lifestyle changes that involve a lot of self-nurturing. Because that's the only thing that's going to heal a mommy's broken heart. Yeah. Is, is being there for herself and regaining and replenishing the energy and the life force and just the years that she lost in that, that enormous trauma. I mean, for that's an indescribable trauma, really. Yeah. So, I mean, if someone's eating... If they have destructive eating behaviors uh, because of a trauma that's happened, maybe not just one significant event like a death of a child, but maybe continuous, subtle trauma, um, like some abandonment issues with, with parents or whatever, um, is there the only way to really heal that to first go and heal the trauma? Um, a lot of people are actually unaware of their trauma. I've got a really good example. I, I treated a woman who um, 
we did some mindfulness, deep breathing, kind of hypnotherapy type stuff. And um, we were working with where she was at as a child because she was about 20 kilos overweight and she had been since she was about 15 maybe. She was significantly overweight. And we were just talking about her memories of her childhood and all that kind of thing. And we took her to a place where she recalled being, she must have been about five on the beach in the Cape with, uh, with her parents and with her cousin. And her cousin was going through some, some rough stuff. Like her cousin was about the age, about the same age. But um, they were playing together and they were building sand castles and whatever. And she was building this magnificent castle and turned back to say to her parents, well, look what I've done. And, and they weren't there. And oh. she looked around and around and around and she couldn't see them. And then started walking towards the water and noticed that her parents were both hovering sort of around the cousin. It looked like they were playing with her. And in that moment, she felt like, my parents don't love me, they love her more than me. Yeah. What had in fact actually happened was that child's going through its own thing, wasn't listening, went down to the water, stood on a blue bottle, oh, and, and just... both the parents went to go help. So I said to her, okay, so have your parents actually abandoned you, or what's really going on here? And she said, oh, no, I remember them talking about this. She stood on a blue bottle. They didn't leave me for her and whatever. And from the realization of the fact that her parents had not abandoned her, bearing in mind that her parents, um, up until that point, so she came to me and she must have been about, I think she was about 30 so it was about 15 odd years. She constantly told her parents that they don't love her enough. They love everyone else more than her. Um, she, f she just consumed her life like she was just never getting enough. Like she just overate food, she overdrank. She did everything in excess. And it didn't matter how much money her parents threw at her, how much love and affection and care and gifts, and they tried everything. They were like at their wit's end. There was nothing that they could do to prove their love to her. And then she realized that this was, the, this was actually the trauma, or the initial spot where she thought, okay, they've chosen other people above me. And once she realized that from an adult perspective, that this is absolutely not truth. It's almost like she debunked her own yeah. dysfunctional belief system. Yeah. And from that point, she started losing weight, and it fell off fast. I mean, it was probably six months, and that was without significant changes, just no more sabotaging behaviors because she didn't feel like she needed to fill herself up with food. People feel like they need to fill themselves up with food when they fill a void. Yes. It's the same with um, excessive drinking of alcohol or drugs or sex, gambling, all of those things temporarily fill the void. They give you a dopamine and serotonin hit. And also food, especially when you've overeaten, once you've trained your body to kind of get used to that feeling of being overfull, it almost feels like a hug from the inside. Yeah. So people are kind of getting some sort of tactile experience of, of a hug, if I can put it that way. You know, they see food as their friend, so they keep turning to this friend. Anyway, so, so that was a really significant. Her story is a really good one. Yeah. Um, and it, it just shows that, it, like you're saying, that it was one event. It wasn't even a huge trauma. But as a little person, she decided automatically, because of one thing that happened, her parents loved everyone else more than her. Yeah. It's, it's actually crazy to think that such a seemingly insignificant event can have such a lasting effect on a person into adulthood. Absolutely. And it really speaks to, to people having to be more aware and, and to do more mindfulness training so that you can look in inward and, and understand why am I feeling the way I feel because just recently a, a family member told me if they don't 
eat something nice or have a drink, they, they feel like they're abandoning themselves. And I couldn't help but wonder if that's not maybe just coming from some traumatic event as a, as a young person. That's quite possible. So that kind of person with a bit of education could make different choices. If you genuinely feel like you need a drink or a piece of cake to not abandon yourself, if you understand that having the drink and giving yourself the piece of cake is actually abandoning yourself, you are not helping yourself, you're not doing yourself any favours having yeah. those. That's a, perce- that's a perspective it's a change. perception yeah. shift, exactly. That when you understand, if you choose different foods, that's actually you showing up for yourself. Yeah, well, yeah. I actually never looked at it that way, and it seems obvious now that you're saying it. Um, so w- when someone's eating to to deal with their trauma and they, they're trying to fill that void, what is the first step they can take to just put a stop to that and say, well, I need to actually look inward and see what's happening here? Breathe. Breathe. The first thing they need to do is as they're heading towards the, f- the fridge, the whatever, just stop. And take like eight slow, deep breaths. And after doing that, so what the deep breathing does is it takes you from a sympathetic, which is a stress response, into a parasympathetic response, which is a relaxation response. So it calms the nervous system down a little bit. And that's where you practice mindfulness. Ask yourself, what is actually going on for me right now? And it's very often, um, I don't know if you've heard of the acronym called HALT, it's the reasons why people have a tendency to go and binge. Yeah. Um, so the first is hungry. So, um, but it could also be happy. We're trained that when we're happy, we need to eat. Okay. Angry, lonely, and tired. When people experience those, they run for food. And so if you can identify, you're going like you have this craving for chocolate and now you, you're scanning the house. You've got to find a piece somewhere. And you take a couple of deep breaths and you stop and you ask yourself, well, what's actually going on here? If you are, have the emotional intelligence where you can actually admit to yourself, well, actually, I'm feeling really angry because of something that's just happened earlier. Or I'm feeling really lonely. You can start making different choices when you understand where you're actually coming from. Because if you're really lonely, you can reach out to a friend. Go for a walk. Even go to a shopping center for some people. I've worked with some people who feel like they don't have friends. Then put yourself in a position where if you're going to have a piece of cake, do it where there are other people so that you have the sensation of being around others. If it's because you're angry, brilliant. Go and scream into your pillow. Go punch your pillow. Do what it takes. Go for a run. Do what it takes to get that energy out of your being because food is not the solution. So mindfulness here is absolutely key. You really need to understand what is the driving emotion. Unfortunately, as adults, apparently, we operate from using three adjectives to describe where we're at, being happy, angry, and sad. We need at least 33 to have some sort of meaningful conversation around or understanding of where we're really at. But there are thousands of adjectives. You know, people will file those, like, I'll ask them, how are you feeling? They're feeling sad. Okay, but what kind of sad? Are you feeling rejected? Are you feeling low? Are you feeling deflated? Are you feeling disappointed? There are so many different ways that you can describe. And so the more, it's almost like, go read the dictionary. The more adjectives and descriptives that you can get to understand where you're really at, the better you're going to understand yourself. And the better you understand yourself, the better you can actually meet your own needs. If you understand that you're feeling deflated or um, despondent about something, as opposed to just a flat sad, there's no depth to sad. 
But when we understand despondency, you can then address what's made you despondent. You can get the right kind of help. Yeah. So your process is, is going through the, that acronym to figure out what, which one of those is really the reason why this person is binging or, or comfort eating. And In the moment, HALT is very, very, the acronym HALT is very helpful. But if you have more time, so it's not like the veil between you and a huge binge, like you're okay. not right on the precipice of that because then you only need those four. Those should be sufficient. Um, if you have more time, then to really go and sit, if you can, in a meditative posture or just in a seat, lying down. You can do it lying down, but you may fall asleep. It's about sitting and being very quiet and asking yourself. It's an uncomfortable process. A lot of people will try to run away from this. That's why they listen to music in the car and stuff like that. They don't want to hear the, They don't want to feel what's going on on the inside. It's about focusing on what's really going on on the inside and then dealing with that irrespective of what comes up. And whatever comes up is inevitably true. So people will try to talk themselves out of it. No, 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 it can't be that. They get a flash of something that happened as a child. No, it can't possibly be that. It's that. It's that thing. It's one of the diff- most difficult processes to go through those to to do that self-reflective inward looking because people are scared for what they might see and they're yeah. scared to face themselves and really look in the mirror because... As we spoke about earlier, when you see something that you don't like, you blame yourself for it. You don't, you're not looking at why I'm feeling that way or where that's come from or why that happened. You're just blaming yourself. I'm not a good person or I'm a bad person or I don't have discipline. And then you kind of go into a cycle of, of just negative emotions the whole time. So is that not something that should be done with a practitioner or at least with a friend just to have some, someone to hold space for you? Absolutely. That would be ideal. But a lot of people who struggle with, the, with have this kind of battle don't talk to people about it. Yeah. You know, this is a silent battle, and it's, this is like a pandemic. Honestly, it is. So many people struggle with this all the time. They don't reach out because there's a shame element. People don't want to tell other people that this is their struggle. So if they have a support system they can turn to, that's always first prize because the support system will be able to say, wait a minute, no, no, this isn't true. I don't buy that at all. Um, let's look deeper into this, or maybe they'll be able to see things from a different perspective and help out with that. Absolutely. But for those who are quiet in their processing and they don't involve other people, it's about sitting in that discomfort. That's a big part of the process and being mindful. And, you know, the truth is when you really reflect on why you are the way you are and the core feelings, you'll actually find that there's a reason. You're not like that just because you're awful. You're like that because something inevitably has happened or some thing has happened in your life that has taught you that this is the way that things need to be in order for you to be okay. You know, people have this idea, it's a very interesting projected idea, which is, of course, again, um, not reality. But if I look like a certain picture, then I'm okay. Who says? Who gave us that picture? all the Disney stuff we've been exposed to from yeah. when we were young you know it's it's like the fairy tales and you've got to look like this and you've got to sound like that and inevitably you know people are never tall enough short enough thin enough um, blonde enough brunette enough people are just never enough in their own estimation yeah because yeah. the estimations have been built on things like Disney when you're a kid or Instagram now the perfect photos that are going up and you're never quite as pretty as the people on Instagram or as fit or as strong and the standards we set for ourselves or that have been set are so high and we actually never reach them. And that, that ends up 
in, in, in self-destructive behavior again. Completely. The, when, when someone's dealing with, with a trauma that's maybe caused some depression, depression or, or uh, chronic fear and anxiety, and they, lead, they go to eating for the comfort or to, to avoid that or get away from it, that eating, the unhealthy stuff specifically, then ruins your gut. And, then, and as we've spoken about it earlier, anxiety and depression has, has a, a root cause in, in the gut health. So... That cycle, how do you break that cycle? Because it's it's depression, anxiety, and trauma leading to bad eating, leading to more depression, and, and it's, it's quite a vicious cycle. And how do people break out of that? Because there's so many people in this world, we see it now with, with this pandemic, how many of the of the causes of, of death are related to diabetes and overweight and things. How do they break that cycle? So with my patients, the first thing I do is... Um, I address the quality of food that they're eating and we exchange certain foods like you don't just take food away from a person who's been traumatized. You don't ever put them on a diet and my from my perspective I would never do that. So it's about I wouldn't ask them to eat less, I'd ask them to eat different. That would be the start. You know, it's um it's a question between having like if they have to have chocolate. Okay, but there's chocolate and then there's chocolate. So can we move to a 70% dark chocolate that's maybe like lint or, a, or a, like a very high quality where they use exceptional quality fats, high-grade cocoa, um, and so there's actually antioxidant value in that, and it's a source of food for your body, and you're still getting the, the, the chocolate feedback as such, as opposed to a cheap and nasty chocolate. So that's the kind of thing I do is I start, we do substitution, uh, substitutions, basically, um, and I find that very effective. You can't just take stuff away from people. They will not respond okay. And especially for someone who's been through trauma, they don't feel like they're okay without this stuff. So it's about getting them to understand that it's very much a quality thing and making better choices in what you're going to have in the moment. And as soon as they start doing that, within three weeks to a month, their gut microbiome is already looking different because you're eating a better quality food. And when your gut microbiome is looking different, your anxiety level is going to be different and your depression levels are going to be different and then we can start working on the other stuff. But it's a process. You've got to be patient. Um, it's really not an, an overnight thing. But that's if, if, I had to, um, if someone had to walk into my office, that's the first thing I'd address with them today is exchanging the amounts of foods that they're eating for the same volume, better quality. And then that will automatically change things if you if you um have some sort of problem with your micro but my sorry my <laughs> microbiome in your guts and um it's caused by poor eating habits how different is it for each person to try and fix that Do, does everyone have some stuff that they need to avoid and some stuff that they okay with i know a lot of people struggle with dairy but some people are okay with dairy um so how do you go through that process of finding out what is causing my problems with my microbiome? Sorry, I keep saying that word. Microbiome in my gut. Yeah. Um, what is causing that problem and, and how do you go through that process of elimination and trial and error? Um, so the first thing I like to do is introduce uh, quite a potent probiotic and that's across the board. Um, I am a huge believer in probiotics. I do think that, and especially if anyone's taken antibiotics and that sort of thing, um, it's an essential part in the, the gut rehabilitation process. Um, so we always start off with that. Um, and then it's really about a conversation and becoming mindful about how your body is, to, is speaking to you. 
So for some people, um, like you say, they may respond to dairy, and others, they're absolutely, it makes no difference whatsoever. Some people don't respond well to legumes and beans, grains, pulses, that kind of thing. It's about becoming mindful. When are you bloating? And normally when I ask people that, they can right off the top of their head, they can go, oh yeah, X, Y, and does, you know, X, Y, and Z does it for me. They know exactly what makes them feel unwell, but they continue to choose these things. So the first thing we get them to do is to stop choosing those things. Either finding substitutes for them, or circumventing that completely. Um, for instance, people might feel um, bloated after eating pasta. Then what I'd recommend is that they try a gluten-free pasta that is made from... Um, pulses, so chickpea pasta or lentil pasta. And then we see with that, if that bloats them, then we've got to change that. And then eventually the bloating actually calms down um, once the gut microbiome has been rehabilitated. But there are, yeah, um, that's basically what I do is, the initial thing I like to do is, is take people off sugar, not completely off sugar, but then use some sugar substitutes. Um, just because especially if, we've, if we haven't had an opportunity to look at their blood and we don't know if there's candida in there, then we'd like to give the gut the, the benefit of, of not having a pro-inflammatory substance in there and a pro-candida substance. So, um, and increasing fiber, we do that with everyone. Um, yeah. The process of weaning someone off sugar is, is quite tough though because it's an addictive substance. So anyone listening to this thinking I'm going to stop sugar tomorrow and um, inevitably within a week they might have a craving and have chocolate again if they if they start winging off saying I'm going to have only one chocolate a week or maybe one block every night and then later every second night or whatever is that type of the kind of the process that they'll need to take because what I've realized is people tell me they don't need sugar in their in their coffee or in their cereal, but they don't realize how much sugar is in everything else that they're eating. It's the hidden sugars, absolutely. That yeah. is a big problem. Um, so, I mean, look, anyone, they, people can call turkey off sugar. I've done it before. It's very uncomfortable for the first week. So it's not a question of in a week's time you're going to have a craving. You may feel like a lunatic for the first three weeks. Uh, not three weeks, sorry, like three days. The first three days, up to seven days, you can really feel like you're detoxing. You can feel headachey, you can feel lethargic, um, you're, you can even have body aches. Um, and then, of course, you will be craving sugar. Absolutely. Like you might be, like if you were coming off cigarettes, it can be that bad, depending on how addicted you are. And then once you hit the 10 the day mark, it's like magic. You stop craving it. Yeah. The thing is, then when you reintroduce it, obviously it re triggers that. Yeah. That craving. I've seen a lot of people reward themselves. I haven't eaten sugar for a month. I'm going to have a whole slab of chocolate. And then they kind of go back. Even myself. I often, and maybe it's because, as you said earlier, as a youngster, I was rewarded with, with sweet things. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm, like last night, celebrating the, the release of the podcast and things, I rewarded myself with a pizza and a whole bottle of champagne with my fiance. So is that part of the problem is that the reward system still seems to be sweet things and, and sugary, tasty things. Absolutely. And again, that boils down to training from childhood. And so their substitution would be wise. You know, it's not about don't ever have the champagne, but does it need to be a whole bottle? Okay. 
it doesn't mean never having pizza, but does it have to be a whole pizza? Could you make it a half just to start? Yeah. Um, does it have to be a whole slab of chocolate or could you get a higher quality chocolate where you actually really don't need a whole slab? That's the thing. Yeah. If you're having a cheap chocolate, you'll eat a slab. But if you're having a really high quality chocolate that has beautiful fats in it, most people can't manage half a slab. You know, it's just, it's very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. So when you up the quality, you can actually half the quantity. Yeah. So it's not about taking it away completely. If you're having a 70% cocoa dark chocolate that's of a very high quality, I'm happy for everyone to have that. There is some sugar in there, so it's not a complete withdrawal. So that could be a, a gentler way of coming off this, where eventually you can let sugar go completely, or you can have very few exposures and then not be triggered all the way back into full-blown having three spoons in your tea five times a day yeah you know that's a big problem people are just they're still adding sugar to their tea and stuff yeah it's quite amazing how it works because a couple of years ago my fiance had some issues with with gut health and immune system and things and taking her off sugar or her taking herself off sugar started with a coffee it was always two spoons of sugar and then one and then half and probably for a year now there's been no sugar and no milk and if you just touch her her coffee with a spoon that's had sugar on it the previous day or something, she can taste it and it actually puts it off. So there, it is possible to get rid of it completely, but it's going to take time. Exactly. It's absolutely possible. And once people have come off sugar, their preference tends to be sugarless food. Yeah. And any time that you come off sugar, because our taste buds are not being overwhelmed by um, sucrose and you know the, those kind of sugars it makes our palate um, more susceptible to fructose and the gentler sugars that come naturally in fruit yeah. where it's low glycemic index for depending of course on which fruit you're having but the sweetness is so wonderful and it's also a lot of it is trapped by fiber yeah. So, you know, you get the, the sugar-fiber combination, and because of that, it makes it a much slower release. It's much healthier. You know, there's at least nutritional value in fruit. But then fruit literally becomes a, a, a sweet substitute. You wouldn't think it, but when you're there, it does. It's, the, it's something like a notch. It could be very satisfying. Yeah. And it's true because looking at, at uh, her lifestyle, or the, the, the anti-sugar lifestyle that she's living is even a nachi becomes too sweet. And she, having been a farmer for Woolworth exclusively, she knows the sugar content that needs to be in things before Woolworth can approve of it being on their shelves. And it's extremely high, even in things like tomatoes. So even now eating tomatoes becomes sweet if you become aware of how much sugar is actually in something like that, you know, for the production in today's world. Absolutely. I just want to ask you a little bit about the gut health stock before, because the conversation goes its ways and then I forget some things. Um, is reflux part of gut health? Is, is, if someone's getting a lot of reflux, is that because of, of their gut health or is that from something else? There's many different potential reasons for reflux. Um, it can be physical in that they may have a hiatus hernia, in which case the valve, the sphincter at the top of the stomach, isn't closing properly. Okay. And so when their stomach is churning, some of the food and acid comes up into their esophagus. Um, for the most part, actually, reflux is stress-related. Oh. And how you manage your stress is gut microbiome-related. Yes. Yes. But what I'm finding a lot of in my practice is that people have 
reflux. Then they go into something like um, they go into a proton pump inhibitor, which is like um, Nexium or any one of the, the generics that are out there. Um, and then what that does is it prevents your stomach from secreting hydrochloric acid. And in doing that, when the food then arrives in the small intestine, it's not actually the right pH to trigger the various processes that need to happen in order for the bile salts and all that kind of thing to be released. And so then we don't digest and assimilate food properly because we don't have the right um, ratio of digestive enzymes, for instance, like the processing isn't happening properly. So in an acute um, instance, you know, someone's going through, they're nervous because they're going to write exams, they go on one of these meds, uh, can we get their gut microbiome right? Absolutely. Even for someone who's been on it, I have patients who've been on those meds for years by the time they get here. We can rehabilitate their gut. That's that's not a problem. We actually need to then address the stress behind what's actually causing the reflux in the uh, to start with. Yeah. What are what are some of the issues with with poor digestion? What's what are some of the health concerns if someone has poor digestion? So everything that comes from malabsorption. So it could be um, vitamin B deficiency. It could be iron deficiency. Um, yeah, it could be um, calcium deficiency. Basically, everything that you expect to get out of your food, you can run short of, not because you're not taking it in, but because you're not absorbing it. Okay. And then stress and, and digestion and eating, because we've spoken about mental stress from from trauma and emotions and things, but there's a lot of physical stress that comes from maybe over-exercise, maybe um, chronic inflammation from from poor form in a, in a sport or something uh, that you guys alluded to on the talk you, you did the other day. Um, how does stress affect someone's eating habits? And, and I know there's something to do with cortisol levels that come in there. Can you just chat a bit about that? Absolutely. So when a person is chronically stressed... Um, your cortisol levels are elevated and your adrenaline levels are elevated. And so when your cortisol is elevated, cortisol is a steroid. Now, when people make the link, it starts making more sense, is if you put a bodybuilder on steroids, do you think you're going to, they're going to eat less or more food? More food, yeah. More food because they're stimulated to build muscle. Now, cortisol doesn't act like an anabolic steroid, um, but it does contribute to hunger, Absolutely, and also contributes to significant weight gain around the waist, most especially. So in highly stressed individuals, I mean, I've said to some people, you know, it's like you can eat air and put on weight. It's just that when their cortisol levels are really high, it just means that everything in their endocrine system is geared towards whatever comes in in terms of food is going to be stored as fat. What is the link between uh, poor sleeping habits and cortisol and, and eating? Poor sleep basically causes an underlying inflammatory condition in the body. You know, it causes a huge amount of stress. Um, we need the different phases of sleep. We need to really, in order to replenish our body, to, to have enough energy, mental clarity, vitality, to be able to get through our day, we need a certain amount and a certain quality of rest. And by not getting that, we're automatically going to be stressed out. Um, especially for, for someone who's experienced poor sleep, sort of, more than two or three nights in a row, then it starts becoming a bit more chronic. Um, we become depleted, severely depleted, you know, moods become altered and all that kind of thing. So that then would drive you to have sugary food because you're tired, because okay. you're irritable, because you're looking for a way to cope, because you're looking to be stimulated, or you might also turn to caffeine, because 
you're exhausted. Effectively, exhaustion is the problem. And, and someone that goes through a whole combination of the things we've discussed, they've got some trauma issues, they sleep poorly, they drink a lot and, and eat for comfort, um, they've got gut problems. I think it's just important to note that what they're going through is not because of them being lazy people or, or bad at, at, at whatever it is. And that, as you were saying earlier, it's a chemical it, it starts with a chemical problem or it starts with something that's happened to you. You're really a, a product of your circumstances growing up. And it's okay to forgive yourself for being the way you are. And, and there is ways to deal with this step by step. And there are people like you that, to come out and, and help them with. So thanks for that, by the way. That's the first thing. I know a lot of people that are going through these things. But I know a lot of people will be listening that have not just one of these issues, but a combination. I think everyone has chronic stress in today's world with the lockdown specifically, but there's just such a combination of things building up that affect people's health. And there's no real, people don't have the answers. They don't know where to go. They go to medication, to their doctors, but there is help and you can forgive yourself for being the way you are and move forward from there, you know? Yeah. So just wanted to mention that so that people know and, and can, can be okay with that. No, that's awesome. Um, and you're exactly spot on. I think once people go through an accounting process of where am I actually, what is actually going on in my life, and then going into a space of acceptance and very and being gentle with self, not judging yourself for where you're at, but understanding exactly like you're saying, you're a product of your childhood and all that kind of thing, then it's almost like you give yourself permission to just let your past go and give yourself a clean slate for tomorrow so that your tomorrow can be different. You don't have to perpetuate the cycle, but for as long as you're holding unforgiveness and you're, you're not actually forgiving yourself for being who you have been, you're going to continue to be that person tomorrow. You have to, you have to let it go in order to really um, successfully move on to a clean slate. Why do people go, go through these chronic dieting times in their life where they're always on a diet, whether it's I'm, I'm on the banting diet or on the keto diet, why is it such a chronic thing and such a conscious decision the whole time that I need a diet? And inevitably, those are the type of people that would fail in their diets and then restart again and then fail. Where does that come from? Inevitably, it's because people don't feel good enough as they are. So they always think by, by being thinner or looking different that, that their world is going to be different. Um, not realizing that um, I've actually experienced this myself. I've, been, I've weighed significantly more than I do now, and I've also weighed significantly less um, after a major trauma. Um, and, you know, you take yourself with you. It doesn't actually matter how much you weigh. Your internal environment and your mental dialogue remains the same. So, um, yeah. Well, there's clearly a, a strong connection between the mind and the body and even the soul because the the spiritual side and the yeah let's call it the spiritual side of of dealing with things like trauma you were saying it earlier blaming god blaming whoever's out there um it's something that needs to become more almost conventional that you're not just depressed because you were born that way or you're not just sick because um, you know, you're overeating. There's always a connection between something that's happened, something that's going wrong in your body or in your brain. And to deal with this, you've got to kind of look at it holistically. So a center like this, Synergy Holistics, I think is brilliant because there's a combination of healers and therapists here that can 
can de- can help people find what is the problem, what is the root cause, and what is the the symptoms that they're treating. Um, so just if you can just speak about about holistic healing and being part of a team like like this at Synergy Holistics and what it what what it means to you. Absolutely. So for me, it's fundamental to be part of a team. Um, we sort of refer to each other perpetually. We are hugely respectful of each other's sort of um, skill sets as such. And um, we all come from a, a, a different angle, but always for the patient's good, you know. So it's one really wonderful to be part of a team that collaborates so well together. We really do come together very successfully as a team to do that. Um, in terms of, of addressing um, anyone's condition, you know, whether it be an autoimmune condition or um, post-traumatic kind of condition, it needs to be looked at holistically because if you look at a person only in terms of their pathology, they can't really heal, you know, the sore arm or the sore leg, for instance. We need to look at people as minds, bodies and souls. And um, we do address that here. Um, at Synergy, so we come together a lot. Um, a lot of us are intuitive, and by intuitive, I don't mean like um, a hocus pocus kind of um, airy fairy stuff, but it's very much a, a, I think it comes from experience, having worked with a lot of people and understanding pain, pain being on a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level and then helping the patient address which level it is that they're actually experiencing, that this incoming, the, that the stimulus is coming in from. Um, I think that's, what, that's how we come together really well as a team, is that we're quite attuned to helping people figure that out. I think pain and, and fear as well. I think mo- so many people are living in a constant state of fear for so many things without realizing that. And, and there's one thing coming here that you almost you feel safe. It's a, it's a wonderful space. I think... What you guys have done here is amazing and, it, and it's a calming environment. It's very nice to walk in here. I almost want to, I came early today because I enjoyed sitting here having a coffee. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then you yourself are quite a holistic, if I can call you a healer, because you are one of the most qualified people in different fields. They all connect, but different fields that I've ever met. Um, we've just spoken about the psychology of eating, but I've just got it here in case I forget. We've done the blood analysis already and then the cranial sacral therapy the reflexology and i mean belief system release therapy it's quite amazing your your resume did you do this because you understood that people have different issues and the only way to fully understand what they're going through is to have the knowledge in in so many modalities of healing no to be honest the way that this unfolded was completely so that i can gain i could gain self-understanding Oh, wow. I've literally walked this journey myself. Yeah. Having had health complications and, you know, to be in remission from uh, from these different um, autoimmune conditions. Um, also understanding my belief systems from my childhood and all that kind of thing. It's really come together as a very holistic perspective on on healing. And I've just basically adapted that to be able to use it with a patient. But no, actually, that was completely me pursuing health for myself. Oh, wow. So on that note, can you talk a little bit about belief system release therapy? What is it and and when, why should people look into something like that? Well, belief system therapy, um, like this relates to the story that I told earlier about the, the girl who, yeah. who realized that she thought that her parents loved everyone else more than her because of something that happened at the beach, which was actually not even a, an actual event. Um, it was just her perception of it. Um, belief systems are basically de- developed 
up until the age of about eight, that's when most of them come, uh, are developed. And some of them can be very subtle and some of them really not so subtle. A lot of them relate to our self-worth and a lot of them are not true. They're not true because they're taken in through the senses of a very little person who has very limited understanding. And when a little person is, is being told something by a parent and the parent is coming across as harsh or unkind or unloving or maybe even abandoning them, they don't have the um, sort of adult perspective where they could go, right, I can see that this adult, my, my parent, is resourceless. I wonder if they slept the last two nights. I heard mom and dad talk about money stress. I wonder if it's about that. You know, we don't know how to relate things that we've picked up in our childhood. And so inevitably, the things that we think about ourselves, the, the negative things we think about ourselves are completely errors. They're not, they're not true. And a lot of those things are, as you said, formed in your young age. And do, yeah. they, do they come out in, in behaviors? Let's say they, they hear the parents talk about money stress, that the person has maybe an obsessive compulsive thoughts about money and saving money and making enough money is that related to belief systems in that instance absolutely yes i've worked with that a lot where people have felt like you know they're they're in let's say banking and they're making a lot of money they feel like a lot is never enough they eat a lot of food they feel like a lot is never enough they have um, a spouse, but then they also have extramarital affairs because they feel like the attention that they're getting from their spouse is never enough. It absolutely relates to everything. Wow. So in, in going back to a person's childhood, you really start to understand the personality type that they've exactly. developed over the years. Yeah. And, and how would that, it's not something we need to get into, it's not really the field, but how would that relate to, let's say, racism and, and beliefs about gender you know, gender roles and things, just in today's climate in South Africa? All of that, I mean, of course, that's, that's completely taught behaviour. Um, children aren't born racist. Yeah. Children aren't born of an awareness of difference of skin colour or difference of gender. They don't care about stuff like that. That's absolutely taught. And again, it's, it's, it's lies. We're, you, you know? Um, and going through this journey, it's actually very interesting because, of course, I've looked at my false childhood beliefs that I've picked up. And in doing that, I've gone into spaces of immense compassion and love for my parents because I've seen that they've only ever done the best that they could. They really could. But they have their own belief systems from their childhood that about themselves that are absolutely not true. Yeah. You know, so there's like this, it's a cumulative effect, unfortunately. It's almost like, you know, biblically they speak about sins of the father or the forefathers as such, as seven generations back. I think this is part of that. That's yeah. just my opinion. Yeah. But it's just that we have these belief systems where, you know, um, you're passed on how to, how to believe in yourself or how not to believe in yourself or what success looks like. Yeah. And, and if, if you're a free spirit and it doesn't, you know, if you're an artist and you like to wear flamboyant colors and... Um, you don't particularly enjoy structure, but you've been taught that working at a bank and, or being an accountant and, and having structure is the only way to be successful. Of course, you're going to believe that you're not successful. Yeah. You know, but generally that comes down from generations. Yeah. So that's where the belief system work really comes in ex profoundly is that people start understanding why they behave the way that they behave, why they believe what they believe about themselves, and then they also have the opportunity to see that it's actually not true. We can debunk these beliefs. Yeah. And in, in, at a risk for blaming their parents if they start realizing that all of these beliefs I have about myself and about life and about other people come from my parents. 
important not to blame them because as you said your parents are only also a product of what they were taught as children correct your parents weren't parenting you that way to spite you they were doing the best that they could for i'm speaking for most parents anyways um and so and you know no one's perfect everyone makes mistakes but I only would do this process with adults. And so I'm working with an adult who has taken full responsibility for their life and they can take responsibility for their belief systems and they can then develop um, compassion and understanding about where their parents have been in their lives and their misguided belief systems. But it's never about blame. It's about you taking responsibility for your own life. It's one of the hardest things to do that I've, I've noticed in, in my short career in practice is people struggle to take personal responsibility especially if something isn't really your fault so it's not your fault that you maybe are racist but you are in the position to change you cannot change the history you cannot change the country's history your parents history what you learned as an eight-year-old but where you are right now you can change your future you can change your children's future and the future of the country in essence absolutely and i think that's very very relevant to today's time yeah i would agree i think um if you're an adult and you have a mind that works, you are empowered and you have the ability to create and mold your experience according to um, your expectations and also these things that you keep putting out there. So, I mean, if, like you say, you, you can't undo your childhood training, but you don't have to be a victim of it moving forward. You can step out of that and identify what is and isn't working for you and drop it if it's not. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um can you tell, tell us a little bit about craniosacral therapy? What is it and, and what, what do people use it for? So craniosacral therapy is a hands-on, very light touch therapy where we evaluate the tension in the dura mater, which is the outermost meningeal layer or membrane around the brain and spinal cord that holds your cerebrospinal fluid in. And in um, evaluating the pulsation and the movement of that, we can also feel what's happening with your, the fascia in your body Okay, so it's very much about using very light touch, which is so nice, you know, especially people, I use it a lot for people who have anxiety and, and all that sort of thing, as well as physical traumas. But it's, it's very non-invasive. The, the lightness of the touch really assists the body in going into a very deep parasympathetic response. So there's a deep unwinding that happens, that happens in, like mentally, emotionally and physically. Um, the body becomes heavier on the bed, the whole body, the whole being just completely relaxes. Um, you can work on physical things like whiplash, for instance, um, uh, by working on the dura mater, but also we release fascia, like I was saying. Um, we work on the bones, um, using the bones as levers, for instance, in the, like pulling on the cranium and very, very lightly manipulating the, 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 bowls, the, the bones of the skull and that sort of thing to get the cerebrospinal um, pump working in unison again. Um, that's level one craniosacral therapy. It's quite a common, a lot of um, the physiotherapists have studied that. Level two craniosacral therapy is actually called somato-emotional release, and that is similar but different. Um, that's what I practice the most. Somato-emotional release relates to um, when there's been a trauma, whether it be physical or emotional, that disorganized energy is stored in a pocket in your body somewhere. So to give an example, um, I was living at home with my dad when I was younger, 
and I fell down the stairs. I was wearing socks on wooden steps and my feet came out from under me and it took so long to get down to the bottom, down this whole flight of stairs, that my father had gotten up off the couch <laughs> and walked around to the bottom of the stairs to catch me when I got there. It just took an eternity. When I got down to the bottom, I distinctly remember feeling like I was dying. Every part of my body was buzzing. It was everything hurt. I had no idea if I'd broken bones, but everything was sore. So that's quite typical of a generalized trauma. And you can look at the emotional traumas the same way as this physical trauma. Is My whole body was buzzing with disorganized energy. This, um, basically, the momentum of my body moving one way and then meeting with the step, which is a fixed energy, you know, causes this shock wave as such to come through the body repeatedly with each step. So then what happens is after you've hurt yourself and it kind of hurts everywhere, your body starts trying to um, encapsulate this disorganized energy. And so what happens is you start realizing, okay, I haven't broken my neck. I can still move my eyes. I can wiggle my toes. I can move my hands. Okay, so that's fine. That's fine. And, with, and over time, so in the beginning it's minutes and then it's hours and then it's days and sometimes weeks depending on what you've hurt. The area that hurts or this area of disorganized energy gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it's, it's stored in something that can be a pocket the size of a pinhead. But that pinhead remains in the body. And often we see that in recurring whiplash injuries where someone has had a sports injury like a rugby injury or gotten a whiplash. And then they'll do something which seems relatively innocuous and not harmful. And all of a sudden their whiplash is presenting again. That's because the actual trauma is still stored in the body. Now, when we do somato-emotional release and craniosacral therapy, we help to, the body to unwind. So what that means is the body starts moving itself around if it needs to release an energy from any specific area. So, I mean, if it's from, um, if you've had whiplash, for instance, your neck or your head might spontaneously start turning um, in an effort or even crane backwards in an effort for this little pocket of energy to have an escape out. And it will have to come out the way that it came in. Okay. So that's where chiropractic itself is also extremely helpful. Yeah. Is when chiros manipulate, they're putting your body in what's called a paranormal space because the angle that your neck is put in when you're having an adjustment is not one that you should find yourself in yeah. normally. You yeah. know, we don't walk around with our necks and our joints at those angles. So that allows for that trauma energy to actually leave. Now, the same thing happens with, with an emotional trauma. You know, you, you, there's a death of a loved one or, you know, divorce or something like that. That same hurt gets encapsulated by the body and gets stored somewhere. And it acts as like an invisible scar. So I think sometimes when someone has been physically tra uh, traumatized and they have a scar to show for it, they're actually better off than someone who has a profound emotional scar and it's invisible. Yeah. Because you have a scar, you can see that there was a trauma in that area and the body is showing you through the scar that it has cellular memory of that. The thing is with the, with the emotional traumas, there is no scar to be visible, but there is an invisible scar. And so that's what craniosacral therapy does, is it puts the body in a very deep parasympathetic response where that trauma can leave. It's, like, it's actually been called psychotherapy for the body. And that's yes. also very handy for people who are in very anxious states and or people who um, feel like they, they can't talk about it, but they know that they need help. Yeah. One thing I've seen a lot in, in my practice is when a person is injured in, in sports. So quite a high level sportsman gets a shoulder injury and a tackle or, or knee injury. 
and coming back after after rehab they the first tackle they make they're down again holding the shoulder and then often they've gone to a, a doctor not too often but i've seen quite a few times when the doctor then says physically your shoulder's fine it was in your mind and one thing i've started to deal with a lot and i chatted to wayne about that is the psychogenic aspect of injury so is that what you were alluding to that there's actually a an energy stored that's related to the trauma because that's physical trauma and the fear of missing out and losing maybe your contract or whatever that trauma mentally as well gets stored in the body in that in that area and is something is cranial sacred sorry craniosacral therapy something that can help with that Absolutely, in terms of releasing that trauma, without a doubt. So that's exactly from my perspective, from a craniosacral perspective, what would have happened is you would have had a physical impact which caused a physical trauma, but then that would automatically be the space then where the mental, emotional trauma and all the fear would then be encapsulated and put. Okay, so it's it's almost double-layered. Correct. So there's, there's the visible injury and then there's the invisible injury because, like you were saying, I mean, fear is debilitating and completely constricts our fascia, constricts our body. There's a lot of chemistry that happens in and around fear in our bodies, and all of that goes to those tissues as well. Um, so um, I can imagine as a sports person, you know, to be in fear and anxiety about losing your, your contracts and all that kind of thing, it's your livelihood. And you've worked so hard to be in a position where you have a contract. So you've now hurt your shoulder and something that simple can really jeopardize your, 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 your future. Yeah. I would imagine that that would be a significant trauma and that would make sense. And that is what is being touched on again. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, I think I can, going forward, if I ever had to come across an injury like that again in, in cricket, when they tear their, their rotator cuff muscles, whatever, and you're trying to deal with them on a psycho, psychogenic level, there's very little understanding of why why do I have to talk to a psychologist? I need a doctor, you know, but I think that opens up that space, craniosacral therapy to you're getting physical treatment but you're actually releasing a lot of the the trauma and the mental part of that. Yes, absolutely, exactly. I wanna just be mindful of your time because I know you've got to run off. How are we doing? I'll be okay. Are we okay? Yeah, it'll be okay. Uh can you then talk a little bit about reflexology. I don't know if you're still practicing in it, but I know you're one of the highest qualified practitioners in the country. So can you talk a little bit about that? So I'm not practicing reflexology at the moment um, because I deregistered from um, the Allied Health Professions Council during the time that I was sick. Okay, I understand. And um, to re-register with them has proven virtually impossible. Unfortunately, it's really... Are you currently registered with the Allied... Health Professions Council. No, for craniosacral therapy, that's, is, that's okay. not listed, yeah. They're quite limited in, in what they allow, if I can call it that. Yeah. So I'm not uh, practicing that. But yes, I did a, my master's degree in that, um, in the trial with a woman with cervical cancer. Okay. Yeah. What is reflexology exactly? So reflexology is um, it's a science that deals with the principle that all of our organs, glands, and systems are reflected in reflex points in the hands, feet, and ears, um, and that our body is holographic. So basically our entire body would be represented in our hands, our entire would be re- uh, body would be represented in any kind of incremental part of our body. Um, and then it's certain techniques used to stimulate these organs, glands, and systems to have a desired effect. Um, we can pick up areas of congestion, for instance, um, Areas that, um, for instance, I've picked up um, a heart attack in a patient who didn't know he was having one. Wow. His heart reflex 
uh, was congested and it, it felt very un, unusual, kind of little stone-like um, toxin accumulation, if I could put it that way, over the heart reflex. And it was unusual for him. And I said to him, you know, when last had he seen his cardiologist? And he said, no, it had been a while. And he said, should he go? And I said, yeah, because this feels unusual. I would go. And uh, he had an EEG and it was perfect. And then he had a stress EEG and he was having a heart attack. Wow. So it's amazing. Um, reflexology is an amazing um, modality, hugely effective. Um, and it's also very holistic in an... Um, in the way that it works because your entire body is treated but also not only your glands organ systems but also your meridians are cleared all that sort of thing it's um it's a very lovely scientific but also energetic practice yeah i highly recommend it okay well, i could speak to you for hours and hours because i've got a lot of questions on all of these things so i'd like to to do this again at some stage sure. um, i'm going to move on to some questions that i ask all my guests um, as a way to to end this off but I just want to say that it's been quite inspirational and and the things that have come up today from you on a personal level and on a on a professional level has been quite amazing and I hope that someone out there can take this even if it's one person and, and learn from it um, so my first question is what are three books that you could recommend maybe in your field or just in life that you've read that have been inspirational and and helpful Three books, yes. So, Brene Brown, I'm like her biggest fan. Have you heard of yes, her? Yes, I yeah, love her, She's yeah. incredible. So, I, anything by Brene Brown is amazing. I mean, even just the TED Talks that she did. Yes, yeah. In terms of developing self-compassion, self-understanding, just taking it easy, addressing your internal dialogue, like all that. The power of vulnerability uh, and the, things. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And how um, vulnerability is such a beautiful thing and it's an advantage and it's not something that should be stifled or suppressed or pretended like we don't have um incredible so anything anything by her um, um let me just check i've got i like to good audible it's just I'll get a oh, little yes. There are many options here. Like I've read a lot of brilliant oh yes, a huge favorite of mine, Michael Singer. Oh, yes. Anything by Michael Singer. He's written um, a book called The Surrender Experiment and, and The Untethered Soul. Now, he's a yogi. I'm a yogi, so um, we speak the same language. Yeah. But um, it's, that's about meditation. That's about when you really get in touch with who you are, that part of you that is the eternal presence. Um, and part of the universe, you start to take like an observer perspective in your life. And when you start taking the observer perspective in your life, it's almost like you stop taking your own life personally. So when you stop taking your own life personally, you stop getting stressed by little things. You stop um, feeling overly sensitive about how other people behave. Yeah. You know, um, and it gives you like a deep calm and peace in your life. I'm going to link to these on the on the show notes so that people can get them. Just say the name again, though. It's the Untethered Soul. Yeah. And the Surrender Experiment okay. by Michael Singer. Now, this um, the Surrender Experiment with by Michael Singer specifically is his story about how he's a yogi and he thinks he needs to be a hermit and just meditate all day long, and how he just surrenders to the flow of life, and the flow of life get, um, takes him to building almost single-handedly, a billion-dollar company that eventually becomes WebMD. 
Okay, wow. It's huge. Okay. His story is, uh, is amazing. Yeah. And uh, very much worth it. And then the third, which I think is um, just amazing soul food as well, is The Four Agreements by um, Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay. So The Four Agreements um, is basically like an ethical code. It's only four. It's a very simple book to read, very quick, easy reading, and it's a lovely read. And if you can bring these four agreements into your life, your life will be much, much, much easier, much deeper, more fulfilling. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that. Those are, those are very cool, cool books. I'm definitely going to check some of them out myself. Um, what are some of the daily practices? I think we have alluded to a lot of them. Um, but if you would say when you wake up in the morning, some non-negotiable daily practices that you put in place. The first is prayer. Um, the second is meditation. Meditate every day without fail. Um, the third is I keep strictly uh, vegetarian and vegan. Um, so those are absolutely not negotiable because that's part of my spiritual path. It's a personal preference. Yeah. Um, and then reading some sort of, let's call it um, personally enhancing, soul growth, spiritually growing text every day. Okay. And that could be from any source. Yes, really. As long as it helps you to introspect, help uh, yourself understand yourself better and helps you become a better person, then absolutely. And uh, then what are the five most important things in your life right now? That's a, that's a good question. Five most important things. You know, lockdown has brought up such interesting things. I think our values are being challenged head on yes. at the moment. So right now, the most important thing in my life, I would say, is my well-being, my physical and mental well-being, um, the, and that of my family and the people that I love. This, the, you know, we've come together as a community, but at a distance, which is so strange. We're sort of trying to stand together far apart. <laughs> yes, yeah. Which has been very, very interesting. Um, my spiritual path is of paramount importance to me. Um, learning non-attachment, which is a, this is a difficult one. Yes. Um, at the moment, I'm parenting a future guide dog, which um, absolutely head over heels in love with his boy. His name's Ollie. And when he turns one, he's going to have to go back to the Guide Dog Association to be um, paired with, yeah. with, with someone who needs him. And so it's, um, it's learning that lesson of if you love something, let it go. Kind of, you know, just loving something as much as you possibly can, but without trying to hold it for yourself. So, yeah, that's a big part of my journey at the moment. Um, so diet and nutrition is very important to me. And then also I practice... Uh, yoga frequently, um, Pilates, and um, some strength training. Also do cardio, so like moving my body is important. Yes. So I like I like to have a good balance, you know, eating well, sleeping well, exercising, meditating, reading the books, yeah. and then my work is very important as well. I've lost count of how many I've given you now. Brilliant ones, all of them. So I like that. Lastly, I just want to give you a chance just to tell people where. They can reach you um, where they can find you. We are at the Synergy Holistic Center, but personally, where can they find you online? And then also, where can they read up more about you and, and things like that? Um, they can check out my website, www.kimsamaritano.com. 
Um, and then I am on Facebook as Kimberly Samaritano, and I'm also on Instagram. Um, and then, yes, at Synergy Holistics, uh, they can phone and make an appointment. Also, if people need to email, um, kim at kimsamaritano.com. Awesome. We'll link to those as well on the show notes. Great. Thanks. I'm not sure how to thank you enough for today. I mean, you've given a lot of your time, but you've also given a lot of your knowledge. And one of the reasons I wanted to start a podcast was to to tap into people like you who have so much knowledge and give you an opportunity to share that and spread the message because people are in need of help and people are in need of growth. So thank you so much for that. And I hope to see you again soon and I hope we can do this again soon. Um, but once again, yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's been excellent. Thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks, Kim.